Lord, we do thank you for your goodness, and we thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy, and we thank you for your word. Thank you for speaking to our hearts. Thank you for moving in our, in our church body. Thank you for moving on our planet. Thank you for moving throughout history. Thank you that you are God. And Lord, we are just specks of dust on this earth, and yet you notice us. Not only do you notice us, but you love us. Not only do you love us, but you died for us so that you could have fellowship with us eternally, starting today. And so, Lord, we're just blown away by your goodness. So, Lord, we ask that you would do a work in our hearts tonight, today. Ask that you'd teach us by your word. That it would not be my words necessarily, but it would be your word that's communicated And that you would just have your way with us, Lord. Please guide us and lead us in Jesus' name. Amen. So, if you would, turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6. This book of 1 Timothy, Paul's given young Timothy. He's a young pastor of the church of Ephesus. Uh, There's a little bit of challenge going on in that church. And... uh, Unlike this church that has no challenge, uh, but theirs did, and uh, so we get some good um, sort of principles that Paul is giving to this young pastor, uh, basically how to do church, and um, it's sort of summarized, if you will, uh, sort of the idea in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Paul tells Timothy, these things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly, But if I'm delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of truth. And I love that. The church is the pillar and ground of truth. I'm reading a book right now um, that's really an amazing book uh, about uh, a lot of uh, falsehood that's going out in our world. Um, socially and otherwise, and sort of, um, well, I don't give away too much of it or digress, but anyway, the point is, there's a lot of falsehood, and we need to inject truth. And I love one of the, so he goes through this, first part of the book is all about the problem, and the second part of the book is uh, about what do we do about it. It's called Live Not by Lies by, I think, Robert Dreher, if you want to look it up. Um, and the second part is all about, um, so what do we do about that? And one of the things we do is we stand on truth. And the book talks about, you know, there are some, so how do you stand on truth? Do I just like stand up in the public square and speak truth? Well, he said there's two primary tools of truth in a civilized society. And that is, check this out, the family and the church. Think about that. You know, the family, ideally, right, is that group of people that sort of, you know, grow up and work together and maybe rub up against each other once in a while and learn how to deal with that and, and sit around the kitchen table and, and disciple together and all of that. That's awesome, right? Now, I realize we all have different family situations. But the other one is the, the church. And this should be a place where you come kind of knowing what, I mean, did anybody know what the message was going to be about today? First Timothy chapter 6 was pretty high on your radar, right? You guys want to stand up and stretch or something? (laughs) You knew I was going to talk about first Timothy chapter 6 if you were here last week, right? Because I talked about, last week I talked about 1 Timothy chapter 5. That's good. So, thank you. There's a reason these these guys sit in the front row. Um, But you knew I was going to talk about 1 Timothy chapter 6. You knew I was going to teach from the Bible. 
you had a rough idea who was going to be here. You knew this is, I hope you feel like this is a safe place. I hope you feel like this is a place where you come to be edified. I hope in, this, in, a, in a sort of a way like the family, like a healthy family, this is where you come as a healthy church family. And I love the, uh, Paul's description of it. This should be the pillar and ground of truth. In a, in a world that is increasingly preaching falsehood. We come here for truth. And so Paul's telling Timothy, this is, where you, this is how you do truth. And so, as you know, there's some practical nuggets, some logistical issues. He talked about, you know, qualifications for leadership. He's talked about different groups of people. Last week we talked about how to, uh, you know, how they were to take care of widows and... and um, different groups of people, if you will. And today we talk a little bit more about different groups of people, specifically employees, employers, uh, some back to some, teach, some uh, um, stuff about false teachers, about covetous people, about rich people, and then finally about, but you, O man of God, verse 11. And so that pretty much covers all of us, right? If you're not rich or covetous or an employee or an employer, you are at least you, O man of God, or woman of God, right? And so we kind of cover some bases. And so there's some different kind of dynamics uh, that play out in that. And so um, he wants to encourage us in all of that and how to navigate all that. Fair enough? All right. Let as many bond servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. Now, in the ancient world, there were a lot of bond servants. They called, you know, they were called slaves. They were called bond servants. Um, uh, the uh, Greek word was doulos. Uh, historians say that there were as many as 60 million of these bond servants, slaves, in the Roman Empire. 60 million. So they were everywhere, right? And you know, we in our American context have an idea of what slavery means, and to some of those people, it was like that kind of slavery. And to some of those people, it was just like their employees, right? And so, you know, there was a quite, quite a wide range of, of folks. And so Paul tells Timothy to teach this, that, you know, those people that are bond servants, those people that are slaves, those people that are um, employees, they need to be respectful of their employer. Pretty straightforward, right? Well, you say, you don't understand, my employer's a jerk. Well, you still be respectful. You still be respectful. Now, there are places I think, you know, there's, there's always exceptions. There's abuse in the workplace at times, right? If you're, a, if you're experiencing abuse in the workplace, I'd encourage you to get out of there, right? Especially in this day and age, frankly, it's a laborer's market, <laughs> but that's another story, right? Um, but, you know, we, we need to stand for righteousness enough to not tolerate abuse, but by and large, there are lots of opportunities that we have to demonstrate respect for our employer, right? Um, I have a meeting tomorrow with my boss. And I'm going to share some concerns, right? I got to make sure I do that right. I was telling my kids, I think I'm more nervous about that sermon than I am about this sermon, right? I got to do it right. When you do something like that, you got to do it right. And it's important that we do that. He goes on, he says, And those who have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather serve them because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. Teach and exhort these things. So picture this, right? So you got 60 million, we'll say, slaves running around the Roman Empire, right? You got, all of a sudden, you got Christianity now in the Roman Empire, right? You got a bunch of people that get saved. Guess what? Masters are going to get saved. Bond servants are going to get saved, right? It's very possible that you and your master show up in church together, right? And so is that weird? Doesn't need to be, right? 
It doesn't need to be. And so, you know, what if your master was a believer and you're a slave and you're a believer? You, let's say you go to the same church. And so you look over and you say, my master's a fellow Christian. You know what that means? Or, you know, I mean, I won't embarrass anybody, but, you know, we got employers and employees in this room, right? So let's say your boss goes to the same church you do. You say, well, that's my ticket to slackerness, right? Slackerness is a word, right? (laughs) I can be a slacker. I can be a full-fledged slacker. You know why? Because he's a believer. He understands. Do we do that? Don't ever do that. Don't ever do that. On the other hand, does the employer give the employee special favors because he's a fellow believer? That's a formula for trouble, right? Remember when I was, a, when I was in college, between my second and third year of college, my dad was a, uh, uh, my dad was a, I don't know what his title was or what you call him, but anyway, he was a foreman on an on a apartment building construction project. There were lots of people, you know, there were subcontractors, there was a, you know, probably a dozen subcontractors and each of them had, you know, any number of their employees and all of this and my dad is the general contractor and he's uh, the boss of the project, right? And uh, you'll appreciate this story. It was, well, kids don't do this, okay? But anyway, I was looking for a summer job that summer. And uh, I said, hey, Dad, you're working on this apartment project. Can I work with you? No. The, the, people, the other guys there on the site, they wouldn't, you know, boss's son, it, it wouldn't go well. I'm like, all right, I keep looking for a summer job, keep looking for a summer job. I was pretty clever. I went and applied for a job as a cab driver. Came home that day. Dad, because my dad was one of these, like, you got to work. My dad was like old school, work ethic kind of a guy. I said, Dad, got a job. He said, good, that's awesome, proud of you. What are you going to be doing? I said, driving a cab. He said, show up at that apartment complex on Monday morning. (laughs) I knew he was going to do that. fell right in my hand. But anyway, <laughs> when I did that, right, I knew that I was on trial, right? I was at least smart enough to know that. I knew I was on trial. I knew why he didn't want me to be there, right? Because uh, he or I, neither, wanted, neither one, wanted any comments about you know, Mamby Pamby, Dr. Son, Mamby Pamby, boss's son, getting special favors, right? We don't want that, right? My dad didn't want that. I didn't want that. And he and I both at least knew it, right? So I was on probation. I did an okay job that summer. Everything was fine, right? But you don't, the reality is there are employers. Their employees. Thankfully, we don't have slavery in our society today, um, but we all need to handle those roles responsibly. I think, really, these problems go away if we do two things. Number one, we honor all people. We respect people as children of God. And if, Je- and if, and if each and every, think about this, if the person that bugs you at work is so valuable to God Almighty that He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die for that person so He could have fellowship with that person, right? Then it probably, then if I have no respect for that person, then I probably need to work harder at finding some respect for that person. And I need to give that person their rightful honor and respect as a human being. Fair enough? the person you disagree with socially, the person you disagree with politically, give them the respect of a person that's a child of God for whom Jesus Christ died. That's number one, respect people. Number two, just understand authority, right? Authority is not something to be misused. It's not something something by which somebody gets to exercise their power. But just, you know, if we're under authority, 
Treat them with respect. If we're in authority over others, treat those that work for us with respect. And so these problems go away if we understand that. But in the ancient world, particularly, you know, in the first century, you got slavery and you got Christianity kind of running parallel. And so it, was, it would have uh, presented some opportunities for, um, that needed to be addressed. He said, if anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings, men of, of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain from such withdraw yourself. Now there's a mouthful. There's a mouthful. So he's kind of starting to wrap up this chapter. He's going back to what he's, uh, really to an idea that he said in chapter 1. He said, as I urge you, for starting in verse 3, he said, I urge you when I, was in when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to false and endless genealogies, to fables, I'm sorry, and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in faith. Now, the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, from a sincere faith, from which some, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. So Paul's, basically, the idea here is some people teach from impure motives. It's bottom line. Now, the reality is we all teach not just the guy that stands here, but we all teach other people. You may teach other people in your family. You may teach other people in the workplace. You may try to teach somebody at Walmart. You are, we are all teachers in some regard. And what we teach needs to be uh, wholesome words, the words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the doctrine which accords with godliness. That's what we need to teach. And we need to be careful not to teach things that cause uh, disputes and arguments over words. Have you noticed there are a lot of disputes and arguments over words? And have you noticed that they come with some passion in our society? And have you noticed that they come from people trying to teach other people those things that are disputes and uh, divisive and, and arguments over words? And the reality is, Paul points out here, the person that does that is proud, knowing nothing. They're obsessed with these things, with these arguments. And these things come from strife. These come, from these come strife, envy, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men, of corrupt minds, destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain, right? They're trying to... Um, uh, get some gain out of their form of godliness, right? So when we do teach, number one, when we do teach, and we're all teachers because we're all ministers, when we do teach, teach the words of Jesus Christ and the doctrine which accords with godliness. That's important. Number two, recognize that it's possible to teach with impure motives. It's possible to teach with impure motives. Jesus said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You'll know them by their fruits. Paul said to the Ephesians, uh, the Ephesian elders, Acts, I believe, chapter 20, said the time's going to come when, when people are going to come in, they're going to be like ravenous wolves. And they're going to seek to draw people after themselves, right? When we teach the Bible here, I hope you understand, I'm not trying to point you to me, I'm trying to point you to God. And if I point you to me, I have failed, not just like I missed it, but I have failed dangerously. If I point you to me, I need to point you to God. When you teach, you need to point people to God. And you need to point people to God with pure motives. And it's possible to have impure motives, even a little bit. I have a friend 
who um, lives up northern part of the state, who had who was talking about some extended family that uh, were in quote the ministry, right? You know what I mean when I say the ministry, not as opposed to your ministry because you're all ministers, but you know the ministry. And this guy's extended family member said he refers to it as the industry. Does that bother anybody? It should make your skin crawl, right? Now, is it okay for some people's provision to come from their ministry? Sure, whatever, that's fine. But do we call it the industry? I hope not. I hope not. Now, so that's a kind of a radical extreme uh, idea of it. But even subtly, can I, can I encourage us in our own lives? Why do we serve the Lord? Why do we serve the Lord? Now, when we serve the Lord, does he bless us? Class? Thank you. He blesses us. Do we like blessing, class? Good, good. Does he take care of us? Yeah. Do we like that? Yeah. Maybe if we get sick, does he heal us? Is he able to do that today? Yes. yes. Do we like that? Yes. Is that why we serve him? No. 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 I read a bill, uh, one of these church marquees, right? By the way, the, I'm kind of thankful that we don't have one of those out in front of the church, right? Because it'd be like me trying to put something clever out there and no disrespect to the folks that have them you're trying to come up with something clever too right but by the way I was thinking this you know when young people uh, text they have this new texting like vocabulary like like U is the letter, letter U R is the letter R right young people do this we don't what do we do uh, old people we voice dictate, and you can sure tell you that when you read it, right? <laughs> the lady I told you about earlier, I hope I'm not embarrassing her, I think I just did. The lady I told you about earlier that we prayed for, she texted me this morning and told me she had ammonia. <laughs> I think she mumbled when she said that into the speaker. Uh, but anyway... Some historians say that that language came from what's missing? You are. Right? You seen those signs on church marquees? What's missing? You are. Right? That's where it came from. Just kidding. It's not where it came from. Anyway, I'm reading one of these marquees. I'm reading one of these church marquees this week. And it says this in all seriousness. It says, heaven will be worth it all. Now, one of the reasons I'm glad we don't have one of those signs is because I don't want people to pick it apart, right? But I want to I work with this one a little bit. Is that okay? Heaven will be worth it all. You like that? No, Thank you. Sort of. Is heaven going to be awesome? What does, it, what does it imply when it says heaven is going to be worth it all? What's that imply about this life? This life is drudgery. It's laborious. It's work. I'm reading into it a little bit, so bear with me. What did Jesus say this life was going to be? I have come that they may have life and have it what? Abundantly. Our journey into eternal paradise starts when? Now. And we call it abundant life, right? So we serve God, not so what he can give us, because, but because we know that serving him is the abundant life. And the more we serve and give of ourselves, just as a thanksgiving for what all he's done for us already. That's why we serve him. Not so we can get cool stuff or so he can 
bless us because of what he's already promised he does. And that is he gives us eternal and abundant life. And so it's subtle, but we need to be careful to not be drawn away from the words of Jesus Christ and the doctrine which accords to godliness. Because the subtle departure of that can lead to some pretty um, bad motives. Useless wrangling of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth. And he says, when you see that, withdraw yourself. Withdraw yourself. You know, there are, t- there are times when Paul, when Paul tells people to withdraw themselves. And... Um, in the interest of time, I won't go through them all. But there are times when Paul says, he doesn't say necessarily punch somebody in the nose, but he says, withdraw yourself. If you're taking notes, Romans 16, 17, 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 11, 2 Thessalonians 3, 6. You can look at those later. Verse 6, he goes on. Now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. You like this? Godliness and contentment together are a great way to journey through this life. Godliness and contentment are a great way to journey through this life. But you know, people have always been tempted to strive, right? Strive for more money, strive for more power, strive for more likes, strive for more clicks, strive for whatever. Paul said in Philippians chapter 4, I have learned in whatever state I am, to be content. Godliness and contentment are great gain. That's a great line. Verse 9, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. You know, there are there's always, and here he's talking a little bit specifically about money, but let me just say in our society, there's always a striving so often in, in, in this society. There's always a temptation to strive for more, right? Maybe you've heard me say before, when I see professional athletes go on strike, I'm thinking, I don't think it has to do with the dollar amount. I think it has to do with the heart, Right? And there's always a striving. And we need to go back to godliness with contentment. Godliness with contentment. Those who strive fall into temptation and a snare. And listen to these kind of words. They drown. That's a hard, that's a tough word. They drown men in destruction. And perdition, those are hard words. Be careful. Be careful. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Now, just for grammatical completeness, so you can say you learned this when we read through it, some translations say the love of money is the root of all evil. Some say it's a root of all evil. First of all, it doesn't say money is the root of all evil. Okay? So money's not the root of all evil. There have been rich people and poor people that have served the Lord for centuries, and it's all about the heart. Okay? That's number one. Number two, in the Greek, oftentimes there's what's called an article, which is a type of a word that goes before the noun, like a or the, right? I say uh a lot, right? That's a different article. But there's no article in front of this word as it's translated. And so don't get hung up on it, right? It really, um, the translation could be uh or the. I think in the context, it's uh. Because truthfully, Greed and covetousness, the love of money, can that lead to all sorts of evil? 
Yeah. Can you find evil other ways too? Yeah. I think we can find evil other ways, right? Bitterness, lust. I mean, there are lots of other ways, right, that are sort of outside of, of greed. And so I think the, the, probably the right the intention of, of Paul's writing is that it's a root of all sorts of evil. God is our provider. Our job is to be responsibly working but trusting in him. And again, that's a hard one. That's a hard one. And, um, but notice, some have strayed, he says. He said, um, some have strayed from the faith in their greediness. We don't want to be that. And notice the straying. That word straying means it can be subtle, right? Nobody, t- nobody wakes up one day and says, I am going to be greedy for gain because I have a love for money. I am walking away from the Lord. That's not how it works. It works like one little micro baby step at a time, and next thing you know, we're on the wrong road, right? That's how that works. And what have they done? They've pierced themselves through with many sorrows. You know, money can bring problems, especially if it came by greedy means. Now, many of us, you say, boy, if I only had another 20%, man, I'd be happy, right? You ever said something like that? Don't raise your hand. If I had another 20%, I'd be happy. I'd be, I'd be done. I'd be good. I've said that, right? And it's really not how it works. As a matter of fact, there are sometimes, I've seen this in people's lives uh, that I've known, where they had a lot of money and that was not a blessing for them. Money can, in fact, be a non-blessing. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, just a different responsibility in a lot of ways, right? But money gained through greed and through uh, covetousness and all of that is guaranteed to disappoint. Please hear that. Guaranteed to disappoint. Verse 11. So, I like this transition. But you... Because that's not us. But you, O man of God, flee these things. And we're going to assume that we're all men and women of God. So, but you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. I love this. So the idea is very literal. We're supposed to flee from some things and pursue others, right? The, the word pursue, like to chase to chase it down, to hunt it down, to pursue it, to track it. Have you ever talked to a, I won't embarrass anybody in the front row, have you ever talked to a deer hunter that wounded a deer? Right? Raise your hand if you ever talked to a deer hunter that's wounded a deer. I have. Right? And he says, yeah, found it on, after the third mile. On the fourth day. I'm like, God bless you. <laughs> right? That's work. Right? But we're supposed to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Chase those things. Flee from the love of money. Flee from... Uh, unwholesome words and, and uh, disputes and arguments over words, but pursue these things. You know, I think the reality is we're all pursuing something. You ever think about that? Deep down, we're all pursuing one or more things. And I can be as guilty of this as anybody, but I, I think I need to refocus at times. I think the thing I need to pursue is righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. You know, at the end of the day, you want to be like Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. That's what he said right before he died. Wouldn't you rather at the end of your life say, I have fought the good fight. I have 
kept the race. All right, I have kept the faith. I have finished the race. Or would you like to say, you know, at the end of my life, I had a pretty good little nest egg set up. I had tons of likes. Do we want to say something like that? No. Can I read you a little parable? you'll indulge me. I want you to listen to this. This I read years ago, and this is one of those, you ever read one of those like little snippets, and it's like sort of an anchor point in your thinking? You ever done that? This is one for me. Once upon a time, there was a man who was bright, ambitious, and hardworking. So that resonated with me, right? Just kidding. One day, a letter from the richest, most powerful man in the world, who was also eccentric and hadn't been seen in years, scribbled in his handwriting was this short message. Dear Sir, the rich man's writing to the bright, ambitious, hardworking man. Dear Sir, it's come to my attention that you are a house painter and that you do excellent work. I have a lovely old house that needs to be repainted. Money is no object as long as it's done properly and to my satisfaction. So this guy was pretty excited. Directions to the house were scrawled in the left corner, lower left-hand corner of the letter with the promise to pay an incredible sum of money upon completion. The man was thrilled to receive such a letter. The next morning, he sprung out of bed, loaded his truck, and drove to the house. So the guy's a, ha- a house painter, right? He's an ambitious house painter. He gets a letter from the richest guy in the world and says, I want you to come paint my house. This guy's stoked, Right? Drives out to the house. When he pulled into the driveway, he gasped at the sight of the monstrous Victorian house and knew instantly this would be his crowning achievement. The house, if such a building could be called a house, stood six stories tall, would have covered a football field. There were parapets and porches, gingerbread work by the mile, and a hundred windows of various shapes and sizes. It was every house painter's dream. With gusto, the man unloaded his tarps and ladders and set into scraping and sanding every square inch of the place. It was an enormous undertaking and required over 10,000 sheets of sandpaper, 3,000 scraper blades, 100 gallons of wood filler. It took 10 years to finish, and that was just the sanding. A lesser man might have thrown in the towel, but not him. Around the clock he worked. When it was too dark, he brought in lights, and when it got cold and snowed, he covered the entire house in plastic. Curious onlookers often ask the man why he worked so hard on the house. Without slowing, he'd answer, I just want to do a good job for the guy who hired me. That's the kind of guy he was, hardworking and conscientious. Once the sanding was complete, the man spent another eight years applying the quality primer, and then he was ready to paint, and paint he did. He chose 126 different shades of taupe and 35 accent colors. You'd have to like taupe. It was truly a sight to behold. The colors were spectacular and the workmanship superb. The decades passed and the house was slowly completed. Every day, huge crowds gathered to watch the now gray-haired man paint with caring strokes. The applause was deafening and sometimes lasted for hours. He was featured in newspapers, magazines, and even a movie was made about the house and the man. Never before had the world seen such a house or admired such dedication. You getting the vibe for this? You feeling it? Everybody feeling it? Are you feeling it? You want me to start over? Are you feeling it enough? Okay. Finally, on the man's 72nd birthday, the last drop cloth was packed away and the house was done. Amazingly, it just so happened that on that very day he finished, a letter arrived announcing that the owner planned to stop by the next day and see his house and pay the man for his work. Next morning, the sun rose into a dazzling blue sky. At the house, the crowd was bigger than ever and police had to be on hand to keep the crowd back. For several hours, the man waited, buffed, and paced back and forth near the front door like a caged lion. The the crowd was wild with anticipation and then hushed in a sudden silence. The man's heart pounded like a bass drum as the black-capped driver exited the door and made his way to the rear of the car with gentlemanly elegance. He leaned over and opened the door for his employer. Every eye searched the dark. Are you on your edge of your seat yet? Every eye searched the dark opening of the car as a small, white-headed man stepped out 
into the bright sun and lifted his eyes, lifted his hand to shade his eyes. The painter, unable to hide his pride, puffed out his chest, beamed a glorious smile, swept his arm upward toward the shimmering beauty. The owner, seemingly speechless by what he saw, gazed at the house, then looked at the man who had labored for 50 years on the house. In a voice as clear as bell, he shouted, you painted the wrong house. He turned, stepped back into his car, and left. The crowds disappeared, the sun vanished behind a cloud, it started to rain, and the cold realization settled over the old man that he had wasted the best years of his life. He looked up at the house, turned, and walked away mumbling. I can't believe I painted the wrong house. My burden for myself and for us is that at the end of this life, none of us say, I painted the wrong house. I spent a long time and a lot of energy painting the wrong house. And the reality is, in our world, there are going to be a lot of people, especially when they face eternity. They're going to say, I spent my life painting the wrong house. Paul says, pursue godliness, righteousness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. When Paul was done, he could say, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. I painted the right house. Now, let me just say parenthetically, if, you feel, if that makes you feel like, ouch, I've been painting the wrong house, guess what? Today is the day of salvation. I talk to people all the time that say, you know, I woke up, realized I was wrong, and I rerouted. I say, praise the Lord. If you reroute at 85 years old or 95 years old, praise the Lord. If you need to reroute today, do it today. Praise the Lord. But don't go to your grave having painted the wrong house. Verse 13. I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Jesus Christ, who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ's appearing. And so what does he say here? He says, for emphasis, he's encouraging Timothy to, quote, keep this commandment. He's emphasizing it. What's this commandment? To pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. He says, keep this commandment in the sight of God, God who sees everything, in the sight of Jesus, who, uh, who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate. And for how long should we do this? Until our Lord Jesus Christ's appearing. Can I tell you this? this? Honestly, I told my family I'd probably choke up when I read that story. They're like, duh. I am grieved by the lack of finishing well that happens in Christianity. I understand why it happens, and yet I don't understand why it happens. I'm not, believe me, I, I know my flesh. I know how possible it is for me to not finish well. I know how possible it is for me to rest in my own security. I totally get it. And yet there's this other side of me, it's like, after all God has done for me, what could I do except Serve him to the end, full throttle, holding nothing back. What else could I do? It's like Romans 12. That's my reasonable service, right? Therefore, 
in light of all of this, in light of Romans 1 through 11, this offer your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. That's the only reasonable thing to do, is to go the distance. And yet, how often do we see that not happening? How often do we hear stories of, you know, high-profile Christian leaders that crash and burn? Let's not do that. Is that all right? Can I say let's not do that? Can I say let's paint the right house till we're dead? Or until, where is it? Until our Lord Jesus Christ's appearing. Wouldn't that be awesome? Until the rapture or death, let's keep trucking. And by the way, we don't have to muster a lot of energy to do that, right? Who empowers us to live the Christian life? What's his name? The Holy Spirit. By the way, could we do it without him? No. Not even close. Not even close. We're frail. So we need him to do that, but he gives us his spirit so we can walk in the spirit. And so that's how we go the distance. We need to go the distance. Verse 15, which he will manifest in his own time, he who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. And so God is God. Jesus will return, which he will manifest in his own time, and we need to be ready. We need to be faithful. Verse 17, just sort of a postscript. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Now, there is one thing about riches. They can sometimes make people haughty, right? If you're rich, are you any more important than you were when you were poor in the eyes of God? No. 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 Are you rich? Is it okay? If you're rich, is it okay to be rich? Sure. If it wasn't by cheating or greed, right? Is the reality, there's, are, there, are there people of various income levels in the church? Yeah, that's okay, right? But those who are rich, tell them, don't be haughty, right? If you're rich, and by the way, we're all worldly, we're all rich in the eyes of the world, big time, big time, right? Don't be haughty over it. And don't trust in the uncertainty of riches, but in the living God who gives richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good, that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. Here's the one thing with riches that are super cool, right? Riches are an opportunity to bless people, right? You talk to somebody that really has a, a grip on this, well, honestly, you probably won't talk to them because they won't talk about it. But sometimes you can kind of catch this, that people that have this pursuit of godliness and also, by the way, happen to have riches, give away money, and they just love it. They just love it. And it's way more fun than driving a new Corvette. And it should be. It should be. Oh, Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust according to this profane and I, avoiding, I'm sorry, avoiding the profane and idle babbling and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge by professing it some of strayed from concerning the faith. Grace be with you. Amen. Just want you to notice this word strayed keeps coming up. Right? Strayed keeps coming up. So how do, we, how do we walk away from the Lord? We do it one baby step at a time. Don't do that. Don't do that. Stay on the narrow path according to the, by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
Guard what was committed to your trust. We've all been given a trust. We've all been given a ministry. We all need to be faithful, diligent, intentional. Don't get distracted with idle babblings. Don't get distracted with false knowledge. Don't get distracted with the love of money. Don't get distracted with false teaching and arguments over words. And I love, how does he close this book? Grace be with you. Amen. Truly said. So God gave Timothy responsibility to lead this Ephesian church. He gives us responsibility to be stewards of our lives and whatever that encompasses. There are lots of distractions and snares. Did you hear me? There are lots of distractions and snares, right? So we stay true to the Word. We stay true to the Word according to the power of the Holy Spirit. At the end of the day, when it's all said and done, we can say, by God's grace and by the power of His Holy Spirit and according to the principles in, the right, in His Word, I painted the right house. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I kept the faith. I didn't spend... 50 years painting the wrong house. And that's a good life. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much that you give us these words to Timothy. Words that reset us a little bit. That refocus us a little bit. Lord, help us to heed these words. Help us to paint the right house. Help us to be faithful to the end. To whatever it is you've called us to. Whatever it is you have for us, Lord, help us to be faithful. Help us not to strive for something else, but help us to pursue the godliness that you want us to pursue. Have your way with us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.